Thanks, guys. So as most of you know, last week we took a break from our study in the book of Acts. We preach book by book, verse by verse every week, um, and we took a break. And I, I really think, I don't know if you were here or not, but I, I feel like it was a, it was a God-ordained moment. Um, and I say that because we've been walking through Acts, and we had just come to the point where the disciples at the end of Acts 5 were experiencing persecution. And the reality is, for most of us, we don't know too many people that have been physically persecuted for their faith. I mean, we know of it, and we read about it, and we know it's real, and we know it exists. But, you know, we just live in a place, the U.S., where we just don't experience much physical persecution. Some may have, and some of you probably know of people who have. But most of our persecution is verbal. But last week, we had the privilege of hearing from a young woman named Rebecca Deng. And she's from the country of Sudan. And I don't know about you, uh, but her testimony was pretty powerful. Can I get an amen? Amen. Um, and I, you know, I realize her story isn't, it's not exa- she wasn't exactly persecuted directly for her faith, but it doesn't change the fact that she is a follower of Christ who is experiencing pain and heartache in a very, very difficult road. Um, and you know, I started reading her book, Courtney and I got her book and we started reading her book and at, at times it was, I mean, to be honest, it was very difficult to even comprehend what she was going through. Um, you know, one minute you're growing up in an African village doing normal kid things, and in the blink of an eye, 80% of the people you know are attacked and killed. And you're six years old. Like, I, I, I just, I can't really fathom that. You know, I don't know if you've been around a, a six-year-old lately. Um, I have, and I'm going to ask my son Jaden to come up here for a second. Um, you want to sit right there, buddy? This could be disastrous. <laughs> Do I need to turn this on? I'm good. You want to say hi? Hi. Say hi louder. Hi. Oh, actually, let me turn it on. There we go. Hi. All right. Um, all right. I'm going to ask you a few questions, all right? Are you ready? Um, how old are you? Six. All right. Um, what do you like to do for fun? Throw the football with my dad. Throw, I did not pay him for that. Throw the football <laughs> with his dad. All right. Um, I think I know where we're going with this, but what's your what's your favorite sport? Football. Okay. Um, how about your favorite food? Pizza. Pizza. Talk into the mic. What do you want to be when you grow up? Football player. Okay, I could have. <laughs> Not a missionary or a pastor like your dad? Mm-hmm. No? You're sticking with the football player? Sticking with the football player. All right. Who cooks the best food, mom or dad? Mom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Who gives the best hugs? Mom. All right, get out of here. You're done. <laughs> All right, we're done. Thank you, Jade. You can go to class. Here you go, buddy. So that's how old Rebecca was when her village was bombed. Like, I, I, I say that, and I bring it up here not to make you feel sorry for her, but the reality is this stuff is happening all over the world, and I think sometimes for me anyway, it's hard to really, truly grasp what's happening. I mean, can you imagine being six years old, your parents are killed in attacks, you're running for your life through the woods, through the countryside, you're hiding in ditches, like I can't even fathom what they must have been going through, and in many cases, you're alone. 
Like, because a lot of these kids were out in the field watching livestock. They were six, seven, eight, nine, all the way 15 years old out in the field watching livestock. And when Sudan was, when the Northern Sudan people bombed the Southern Sudan people, like they were coming into their villages and uh, annihilating the villages, but the kids weren't in the villages. So the kids were the only ones who survived. So they were out running, you know, you hear bombs going, you run back to your village, all of a sudden you have no idea what to do. You see people or you hear stuff going on over here. So you just start running and then you start walking. And when you read about these lost boys and girls of Sudan, which I'm sure some of you have heard about before, but when you, when you read about these kids, I mean, it, it's very traumatic. A lot of them walked over a thousand miles to get to the refugee camps, a thousand miles. I, I, it's hard for me to kind of gauge where a thousand miles is. So I went on Google maps and I, I wanted to see, I was way off. Um, I figured it was Atlanta. Um, I, I wanted to see where a thousand miles was. And so I put it in from our new church property. If you drove a thousand miles north, you would end up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So that, that, that is the distance that a lot of these kids had to walk. I mean, some of them, it took them years to walk there. History says there was 20,000 kids from villages in South Sudan that were walking to these camps in Ethiopia and Kenya. And half would die along the way, right? Some from enemy soldiers, some from starvation, some from dehydration. Um, Others were attacked by wild animals. Obviously, in these parts of Africa, a lot of these wild animals still roam. I mean, when I I look at, you know, when I, I think about my son, parents, you know, killed, and then him having to do that, I mean, you just, you can't even fathom it. And so, you know, then when you actually get, so picture yourself actually getting to Pittsburgh, Kakuma was the refugee camp they were going to. You've walked all this distance, years in some cases, and you finally get to this refugee camp, and Kakuma is still one of the largest refugee camps in the world. Um, This is an actual picture on Google. You can see it on Google. It's so big. If you went on Google Earth and just kind of zoomed in, you can see it. This is more of an aerial shot. Now it's housing Syrians and folks from other parts of the world that are coming in, but this is Kakuma. Like, this is what it looks like. And so imagine walking all those miles, dealing with everything you've dealt with from, you know, from the age of six and seven, you finally make it to the refugee camp. And then this is really what you lived in, in the refugee camp. And since most of these folks, they couldn't go back to their home country. They weren't citizens of Kenya. They weren't citizens of Ethiopia. They really had nothing they could do. They were farmers by trade. You're not farming much in that land. So, you know, what they could do, their skill set, just, there, there was, it was hopeless. And she lived, Rebecca in the book said she lived there for nine years in that camp, Kakuma. And the crazy thing is, as hard as it was, she said that's where she got exposed to the faith. There was a little church inside the, inside the refugee camp, and she had heard about Jesus before, but it sounds like that's, I mean, at six, it's hard to really have a true grasp of it all. I'm not saying you can't, but you're growing as you're getting older. And so when she got older, that's when she started understanding who God was and she grew in her faith. And I think by default, she said she learned that she could depend on him. And she said that trust continued through her acceptance to the the Lost Boys and Girls program. And then that trust happened through the assault. Remember, she said she was assaulted two days before she left, which led to her getting pregnant. And then even her relocation to the United States. She said no matter what path she walked, I mean, it was horrific by most of our accounts, by anybody's account. But she said she just had to trust God through the ups and the downs. It's almost like he was on the horizon. And whatever she had to go through, it's like he's still there. 
Like I still am going to put my faith in him, even though it doesn't make sense sometimes, even though it's hard. And she was 16 years old when all this went down, from the age of seven to the age of 16. And at one point while I'm reading, I'm picturing this young girl crying out to the Lord. And, you know, it almost, here's the thing I, I think it's very interesting. In almost every case, instead of removing her from the situation, which obviously it doesn't appear she got removed from too many situations, and she even gave the, the, the example of Joseph, which is why she calls her book what they meant for evil. You know, you picture Joseph in the Old Testament in Genesis. You know, we kind of think of it as a fairy tale story, but he was in prison, he was in captivity, he was accused of, I mean, all these things are going down. And so she kind of likened her story. Like, I didn't like what I was going through, but I know God had a purpose, like there was a plan. And so as I'm reading this, I'm just like, I'm watching her prayers and they weren't answered the way I would want them to be answered if I were her. They were answered by God bringing someone into her life to come alongside her. Like it's, it's interesting because instead of removing her, he brings someone in. And I, you know, just don't miss the fact that along the way, God will do that. Like along the way, as you're walking through these situations, my zeroed in 100% focus is, Lord, get me out of here. I don't want to be in this situation. And so often his answer is just, let me bring someone in alongside. Like his answer for us is so often people, the body of Christ, believers who can pour in and encourage and love us and help us financially and help us physically at times. And like, and when you hear her story, you, you can't help but have empathy but God, like in her village, when her village was bombed, she, like all, all these kids are scattering, her uncle survived. And her uncle is the one that led them on this journey. And then she gets to the refugee camp, which basically there was almost zero hope in the refugee camp, but she had a teacher who told her about this program. Teacher didn't have to do that, but God put that teacher there and that teacher told her about the program. Well, she couldn't get to where the program, like application and interviews and all this stuff was. So the teacher took her, like left what he was doing and then took her all the way to where these interviews were and then came all the way back. And I mean, this happened over and over and over. Or then when she gets to the States, she's pleading with the Lord to give her a Christian family. Like the only way I'm going to survive this new land where nobody is, I don't know anybody, I don't know the language, is if at least I have a Christian family who can encourage me in that, and God provided. That was her prayer. It was like, just give me a Christian family. And here's the thing. Show me any follower of Christ who's walked through pain, and I'll show you people that God has raised up to come alongside. And I think we tend to be such a individualistic culture that our, our tendency is just to kind of push them away. And God's like, I like I am their hands and feet. I am ministering to you through them. And that's that's what you see. It's like God is raising up people. Today as we come to the book of Acts, as Jake mentioned, we have this little tiny passage, seven verses. Okay? Don't think that means you're getting out early. Seven verses in Acts. All right? And these there's these widows who are crying out for food. I have no idea if they were crying out to the Lord in prayer. We don't, he doesn't say that. We don't see that. But they didn't have food. It just says there was a complaint that arose. So they're obviously at least complaining. We at least hear, hear that kind of crying out. But God hears them, and he provides. And interestingly, here's the thing. The issue for the early church is not lack of food. The issue for the early church is not lack of money. Because people were selling all that they had and bringing it and laying at the apostles' feet. 
They had the food. It, they, had, they had the money. But here's the thing. These, it was lack of people to serve the food. The disciples were, the, the church had grown so fast, so quick, that the leaders were being stretched to the max. And they can't keep up with all the needs of the people. Like, that's just, that's what's happening. Now, in our day, in our churches, not Creekside, but just generally speaking, this is a sweeping stereotype of American churches. When we hit that situation, we just hire more people. Right? Okay, I can't deal with this. Um, let's hire one here. Okay, I need more people. It's like a, it's like a, I don't mean this negatively, but a lot of times it works like a corporation. I need a man here. I need a man here. I need a woman here. You know, I need this. So we just hire people. Well, they didn't do that. That wasn't the way they were structured. They had house churches and things. And so what they did is they went to the congregation and said, we have a need. We need people. And they raised, God raised up people from inside the church. That's, that's exactly what happened. So with that as a little background, let's jump in. Acts 6, verse 1. Now in those days, excuse me, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So we're going to stop there. We won't stop after every verse, but this requires some explanation. At this point, the church, the early church in Acts, had experienced massive growth. This was no longer the 120-person church in the upper room. People kind of gathered around. I mean, this was probably 20,000 people at this point in a very short period of time. So let me let you in on a little secret. As churches grow, things change. Anybody in here like change? Okay, I'm not seeing any hands yet. Okay, one, two. Okay, now you're getting braver. Okay, the whole fluke family likes change. Um, but here's the thing. I hate change. Oh, what? seriously? My wife laughs louder than anybody. <laughs> you could ask Courtney. I hate change. Um, I remember a few years back, my parents... I still can't believe you laughed that loud. <laughs> I remember a few years back, my parents moved out of the house we grew up in, and I had no right to even have an opinion. I hadn't lived at home in 15 years, but they, they were going to move out of the house, and it's not like my room was a shrine to me. The, the day I moved out, that room was changed, all right? Now, my sister's room was the shrine, all right? She got the shrine, but for me, it was just like, all right, let's turn that into the office, that kind of thing, but for me, it was like the memories. You go back, and like, that's where that happened. That's where I played baseball. See those spots on the wall? That's where I threw the baseball against the house, and like that was all there, and I think it's just human nature. Most people, based on whether you were maybe just nervous to raise your hand, don't like change. There's too many people here now, right? I don't even feel like I know anybody. We went to two services. I don't hear these complaints, but this is what could, this is what you could be saying, all right? There's two services now. I feel like I don't even know the people in the other service. You know, last week, I actually had to sit on the front row, Thank you guys for sitting on the front row. Or how about this one? I know some of you have thought this, even though you haven't said it. I remember when I could sit in a chair and there was nobody next to me, right? Ray's over there shaking his head. Some of you wish there was, uh, I shouldn't say that, but that's, that's the way it works. And honestly, we don't like change because it interrupts our routine and our comfort. Like that, that's what it does. It interrupts our routine and our comfort. But more importantly, when the church grows, there's more people, there's more needs, there's more ministry. Can you imagine the needs of 20,000 people? Like in here in Acts 6, we have this group of widows, the Hellenists, as they're referred to, and they're being overlooked for food. So let me give you a little background on the Hellenists. In Jerusalem, at the time of Christ, there were two, really two different groups of Jews. There was what would be referred to as the Hebrews, and there was the Hellenists. All right, and the Hellenists were 
but really they got their name from Alexander the Great, the, the Greek Empire, which probably thrived four to five hundred years before Jesus walked the earth. Right, The Romans ruled, as you know, when Christ was on earth. The Greeks were the major empire before that. They were so dominant that their, probably their primary conqueror, who was named Alexander the Great. Have you guys heard of Alexander the Great? So their, their primary conqueror, Alexander the Great, who, by the way, died at 32. But we all know who he was because he was just so famous 2,000, 2,500 years ago. He had conquered most of the known world by the age of 32. And the Greeks did something really interesting when they would go into a new civilization or a new area of the, of the world, instead of annihilating everybody, they would come in and they would just say, you're going to take our culture, you're going to take our beliefs, if you will, you're going to take our language, and they called it Hellenization. That's what they referred to it as, Hellenization. Like this was the days of the philosopher, the educated. This was Socrates. This was Aristotle. This was Plato. This was Athens. Like this is where all this stuff was going down. They, and they looked at it like they were educating the world with their ideas. And it was very important to them to do that. So they had two main areas of, call it operation. They had Athens in Greece, and they had Alexandria in Egypt. And so they would, when they would take over areas, they would take people back and educate them. Under Ptolemy I, which was about 250 BC, they took 100,000 Jews from Jerusalem back to Alexandria, Egypt. This is 250 years before Christ. Um, and Alexandria was this major area of education. It was best known for its, this big lighthouse. So when you would come into Alexandria in the ancient world, you would come in into the, the harbor, and there was this massive, the tallest man-made structure in the ancient world. And it was just huge. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So when you came to Alexandria, it was like, I didn't even know men were capable of this. Like, look at, and it just automatically made you think, these people are smart. These people know what they're doing. And then you'd kind of get institutionalized into their beliefs and Socrates and Aristotle and Plato. And you can see how easily you could just kind of fall into, all right, this, they must be the intellectuals of the day. This is what we're going to do. And they're also known for their libraries. They had the largest library in the ancient world. And people would come to this library and their goal was to get information and history and documentation from every civilization and every society that ever lived. So you could literally come into this library, one of the first in the world and one of the biggest in the world, and you could get anything you wanted to know. And their goal, that was their goal. So then when Ptolemy the first died, Ptolemy the second came in, and he's like, we need something from the Jewish culture. So he took, at that time, 70 Jewish elders, and he put them each in a separate like cubicle, if you will, where they couldn't talk to each other. And he walks in and he says, I want you to write down your Torah in Greek each one individually. And God, as God would have it, they wrote it all identically. All 70 of them wrote it identically. And they would add to it, and they would add in the prophets, and they would add in the, the history sections of the Torah, and eventually they would, it would become to be called the Septuagint, which is the, the, it was the first Greek translation of the Old Testament. Jesus actually referred more to the Septuagint when he was quoting the Old Testament than anything else. And the Septuagint is just the Greek word for 70 which is where the 70 scholars came from. And so that was their goal. So if you fast forward a couple hundred years to the time of Christ, due to Hellenization, most of the Jews outside of Jerusalem spoke Greek. They didn't speak Hebrew or Aramaic. They spoke, they spoke Greek. So then if you, now in Acts, 
Pentecost comes, these Jews, as you remember from Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it said people from all over the world, every nation under God, every tongue, like came to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Many heard about Jesus, they got saved, they stayed. So now you've got very different Jews residing in the same area of the world, like this same city. And I think it's almost racial to a point. Like they had different cultures, they had different languages, they worshiped differently. They, they honestly, that most scholars think they didn't even really get along, right? We do things this way, we sing this way, we do the service this length. Like you're not doing it right. Like you can do it that way, but that's not the right way. One of my favorite things to do when I go to a different country is go to a church service because they're so different. Not because I'm like super holy, but they're just so they're so different. I, I love this experience, the culture of the way people worship. And so you go to Africa, it's different than if you go to India or Cuba. And in India, everybody comes in and they, they take off their shoes. They walk in, there's no chairs. You sit on the floor. Men sit on one side of the room. Women sit on the other side of the room. And they all sit Indian style, no pun intended. Like that's, they just, they come in and that's what they do. Different cultures. They do things differently. And here's the deal. Kind of personalize this, bring it back here. As our church continues to grow, there will inevitably be change. Both in the way we do things and the different types of people who walk through the door. My question for you, my challenge for you is, are you okay with that? Are you okay with that? I mean, I'm talking different classes. I'm talking different ethnicities, people who are rich, people who are poor. That's the church. Jesus loves them all. Like, what if we decided that once we got in our new building in September that a church approached us and said, hey, you don't meet on Sunday nights. Can we rent your facility? And it was a Korean church or a Filipino church, or it was a Haitian church. And so we said, sure, you can rent our facility. You know. So they come in and they're worshiping. And then we decide to start gathering together more often. And we, they come to our movie nights and we go to their, like, are you okay with that? Like that, that's very important to us that you're okay with that. Because that's the way we operate. Like, we, we know that God loves everybody. And it's, it's extremely important to us. And so, I, I don't know if this was a big deal for them. I, I don't know that they, you know, they were fighting and it was all racial. But you can see there's, there's something going on because it's mentioned. There's something that needs to be addressed. I love how the verses, it almost talks a lot about church growth. Verse 1 again, we'll read it again. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, now you know who they are, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected by the daily distribution. Satan's two favorite methods of attacking the church is persecution from the outside and discord from the inside. Like that, that's just his thing. Those are the two favorite ways. You know, the fact that the widows were hungry is not the only point of the story. Obviously, widows are important. There's, scripture, there's verses all over scripture on how important widows are. Right? So we know they were important, but the reason I think this story is shared is more to show us how the church deals with stuff that's going on, how it deals with issues. Do we grumble and complain? Do we start dissension? Do we talk behind each other's backs? I don't see any of this here, and that makes me really, really happy. But as we continue to grow, we have to make sure that doesn't creep in. Right? Do we stop meeting together? Or, like they're going to do, do we stop and discuss problems, issues, concerns in a godly fashion? which is with the appropriate people, because that's important too. And there's actually two problems with their complaint. One, they assign motives. They assumed the Hebrews were leaving them out for racial and cultural reasons. 
And we know that because otherwise Luke would have written the verse to say one group of widows was not getting fed and another group of widows was. But he's very, you know, there's nothing in there by accident. The Hellenists were angry at the Hebrews. So it's, it's listed. I mean, Luke writes that very purposefully so we can see that something's happening, right? And I love it. He says, the complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews. It's such a visual. Like, don't miss the words. Arose. When you think of something rising up, it's like it's brewing, right? It's almost, it's the murmuring, the whispering, the frustration of they're doing this, that they're doing that, the complaints. And finally, it says, a complaint arose. So it, it all, I mean, imagine how long this was going on. I doubt it was day one. I doubt on day one, oh, we didn't get food. Um, we didn't get food. What's going on here? Like the, the picture Luke is painting is that there's a lot of stuff going on. And honestly, having, having issues in the church is not the end of the world. It'll happen. But I think the issue is they didn't bring it to the apostles. The apostles heard about the complaint from someone else. They sat on it. They talked about it. They complained about it. And that's, that's really what Satan loves to do. He loves resentment in the church. A spirit of grumbling and complaining kills more churches than persecution. I guarantee it. Especially here in our country. I mean, churches aren't closing their doors because they're persecuted here. You see churches close all the time because of grumbling, complaining, infighting, bickering, you're focused on the wrong things. doesn't really matter what color the carpet is. Like, you're focused on the wrong things. I mean, think about Rebecca looking above those circumstances and looking at Christ, because he is what's important. So always give, I'll just give you a few action items, if you will, for this. Always give people the benefit of the doubt. Don't always assume the worst. Assume the best, and if you've got to deal with the worst, deal with it but always give people the benefit of the doubt. Like we have no idea why they weren't getting their daily bread. Was it racially motivated? Probably not. But it didn't stop them from thinking it was and complaining about it. My guess is they were accidentally overlooked. Can you think of how many widows were there among 20,000 people? You have 12 disciples. You have 20,000 people. <laughs> there's, a lot, there's probably a lot of widows under 20,000 people, right? And they probably were overwhelmed. There is no doubt that they were overwhelmed. So when you have a problem, go straight to the source, right? It's, it's an important thing to do. And I think we'll avoid so much disharmony that I haven't seen yet, but potential disharmony if we operate that, that way. So what do the disciples do? It's brought to the disciples and the disciples put people in place to help with the needs so the church can continue to grow. And how they choose them, I think, is really interesting. Verse 2, and the 12, so the original apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So they basically went to the church body and said, look, feeding the widows is very, very important, but so is preaching the word. And we don't have time to do both. So why don't you guys choose people who are very capable of doing that and they can take care of the widows. And here's your direction. I love the direction. Choose men of good repute, full of the spirit and full of wisdom. Those are your marching orders. When you're out there looking for these guys that you're gonna choose to serve the widows, they need to be full of good repute, full of the spirit and full of wisdom. It's a really interesting directive, right? I mean, choose men of good reputation, Good repute. 
Like, you may not care about your reputation, but God does. It's, it's important to him. It's important to him, you know, if, if you're a shyster and people are seeing you and that's all they think of you, and all of a sudden it's like, it doesn't bode well for the body of Christ if that's how people view you. I'm not saying you got to be a people pleaser. I'm just saying, look, have a good reputation. When people look at you at work, they should be thinking, oh man, that's, I don't know much about him, but I know, I know he's got integrity. I know she's honest. I know she treats people the right way. I, like that's, that's just, and that's what they're looking for, right? In addition to reputation, choose men who are full of the spirit. Anytime I hear filled with the spirit, I think of Galatians 5. Galatians 5.16 says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit is, now think about this is, this is who they are choosing. People love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And then finally, men who are full of wisdom. If you ever read Proverbs, Proverbs talk a lot about wisdom. It talks about the foolish man and the wise man. And kind of, if, I mean, if you read a proverb a day, it's a good discipline. 30, 30, 31 Proverbs, read a proverb a day. But that's, I mean, you just, if you read through it, you're going to hear all kinds of, of discussion about the wise and the foolish. And Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. And all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise or be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. I love this quote by Matt Chandler on the wise. He says, the wise, their life is different. Different in the way they consider their marriage, the way they consider parenting, the way they consider dating, finances, where they go, what they do and what they say. Their life has purpose and direction. It's marked by usefulness. It is marked by a life moving towards a purpose because they know that through the cross of Jesus, they have been forgiven, redeemed, and invited in. And because of that, their lives will never be the same. They can't be. So the wise embrace the fear of the Lord and live intentionally because of him. So that's the type of people the apostles are looking for to serve the widows in need. And if you step back and think about it, I think it's weird. Like when you're first reading, like we've heard it so many times. Oh yeah, that makes sense. But it's, it's food. Essentially, we're having a meal and we need people who have good character to serve the food. Like I don't, if I was looking for people with good character in the grand scheme of things in different areas of service in the church, I don't know that serving food, I would really, obviously I'm not in charge, but I don't know that I would, it would really be on the top of the list. Like what if we did that for the women's brunch? Jake talks about all the people, we, all the guys we need to serve for the women's brunch. So what if we said, all right, sign up from the back. Um, but we're specifically looking for men, while you're laughing, men of, do you not think we have those men in this church? We're specifically looking for men of good repute, men who are full of the spirit and full of wisdom. So feel free to go sign up. But if that's not you, you may not even bother. Like, like really? Like, is that, but who, who cares, right? That's the way I would look at it. But here's the thing. Every area of service in the church, even serving food, is a direct reflection of the love of Christ. Every area of service in the church, I would say even if you're serving in the name of Christ outside the church, is a direct reflection. If you're in the tech booth, you're showing the love of Christ for how you, I mean, it's just, it is, it is what it is. You are a representative. You are ambassadors, as Paul would tell the Corinthians, of Christ. And so the reality is when people walk in the church, their view of Jesus is either strengthened 
or weakened based on the character and the lifestyle of the people who are serving. If, if, I mean, if they walk into the church and they know me and they say, oh, there's Shale's preaching. <laughs> I know what he does every week. I, know, I mean, what do they think about Jesus? And so it, it, can, it extends between, along everybody. Like it, it doesn't mean these people are perfect, but character is important. And that, that's the point that Luke, or that's the point the apostles are trying to get across. So if you go to Titus 1.7, it says, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And then 1 Timothy says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now, those particular verses we know are talking about deacons and elders. And many scholars think this passage in Acts is kind of the, where they're beginning the role of the deacon. The word deacon is not used anywhere in Acts. So we don't know that for sure. But we don't know if this is, he's laying out this good repute and this full of spirit and full of wisdom because he's kind of setting the tone for what a deacon is going to do. I don't know that. I don't think it matters or they would have said it. The reality is we are all servants of Christ. Would you agree? We are all servants of Christ. Some are leading children, some are leading worship, some are leading small groups, some are leading Bible studies, some are playing the drums, some are cooking and greeting and leading their families and leading people at work. And like in some way, shape or form, we're all servants, like we're all in this together. And my, my hope and my prayer, especially if God continues for us to grow, is that you see needs and you step in and you fill them. Like the reason disciples thought this was so important was not just because the widows needed food. Like once, if I'm one of the 12 apostles, once I realize there are, there are widows in, like, in Jerusalem, they're not getting food, they're going to get food. Like that's, that's not the question. It, the, the issue is they knew if they were the ones who did it, they wouldn't have time to study the word. And they wouldn't have time to be in prayer. And so they're like, look, we, this, is, this is so, imp- if the church is going to grow, if God's word is going to be preached, they're like, we have to have time to study the word. And that, I mean, for a church to function properly, that's what has to happen. So they pick servers. Verse five. And what they said pleased the whole congregation, whole gathering. So they were talking about, here's what we're going to do. And then they chose seven names that I'm going to butcher. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith. We'll hear about Stephen next week. And of the Holy Spirit and Philip, Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, apostolatite of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So I love the fact that it says the people were pleased with the change. Most people aren't pleased with change, but they were, they were pleased. And I'm sure not everybody, you know, that first widow that they showed up to, the door opens, where's Peter? You know, hey, I'm Prochorus. Who's Prochorus? Like, where's Peter? Peter's the one that usually comes. I'm not feeling well. Maybe he can, you know, hook me up with a healing or something. Like, this is, this is what, probably what they're experiencing. And that's what could have happened. But as best we could tell, it didn't happen. Because they understood that with growth comes change. Not, not only for the good of the church, but for the continued growth of the kingdom. And, and they're smart about who they choose. I'm not sure if you notice this, but these aren't Jewish names. They're Greek names. They're Hellenist names, right? They're Greek. They're choosing men who can communicate and empathize with the, Hel- with the Hellenist widows. And then we come to verse 7, the last verse here. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, 
And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I love that verse. They dealt with the issue in a godly fashion. The word of God increased. And it says the number of disciples multiplied. Notice they didn't say there were a lot of decisions made or people started coming to church. They said the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Because the reality is our commission as believers, stated very clearly by Jesus before he ascended into heaven, was to go and make disciples. He didn't say, go put a bunch of people in a church. He didn't say, see how many people you can get in an event. He literally said, go and make disciples, teaching them all that I have commanded. And that's exactly what we see. And he also says something interesting. Luke says, a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. Most scholars think there's probably 8,000 priests living in Jerusalem. Most of these priests at one time or another had, very, had been very hostile to the cause of Christ. I mean, we saw that all throughout the Gospels. And I, I, nothing's in there by accident. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Don't, don't miss the fact that even the fiercest enemies of Jesus can come to know him. You've got somebody in your life that you're praying for, that you, there is no way on God's green earth that that person is ever going to put their faith in him. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep, keep pursuing. That, I think this is in here for a very clear reason. Luke could have left it out. But he said a great number of the priests, a great number of the priests became obedient to the faith. And that's it. That's our, that's our passage. This random little story about widows being neglected for the distribution of food. There's, there's a couple things I want to I leave with you today. First of all, for those of you who would say, look, I'm kind of in this skeptical phase. I would not consider myself a follower of Christ. I'm I'm interested. Like I've heard about him my whole life, but I wouldn't call myself like a true Christian. I wouldn't call myself a committed follower. Here's what I would say to you. I want you to know that God loves you. We love you. And he is pursuing you. You're not here by accident. You think you're here by accident. You're not here by accident. You're here because God is working on your heart and he's working in your life and he's pursuing you and he's saying, look, I want a relationship with you. Like you finally said yes, maybe to the person who invited you. That's because God's been working on your heart. He wants a relationship with you. We're, we're a group of screwed up people, right? I mean, we're God-fearing, Jesus-needing people who have come to the realization that we can't do it on our own. I mean, we can't. We need a savior and we have one. He came down to earth. He walked among his creation. And what did he do when he was here? He was, he was loving. He was caring. He healed people. He said, come to me if you're tired. Come to me if you're weary. Are you worn out? Are you exhausted? Are you wasting your life on this hamster wheel of things that you think are going to give you pleasure and satisfaction and they're not? Like, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he hung on a cross to, to pave the way for us as sinners to have a relationship with a perfect God. Because we couldn't have that relationship if there wasn't a sacrifice, if there wasn't blood shed. And that's what he did. And he rose again three days later. And I always used to hear people talk about getting saved when I was a kid. I'm like, what does that even mean? Like I'm looking around, do I need to be saved from something? You know, I mean, what's, what, does that, what does that mean? It's, it's so simple. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, like, I, I know that he is Lord, and I confess that. And you believe in your heart 
that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's that easy. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And then for those of you who are already followers of Christ, and you're sitting here today, we got some work ahead, right? One of the things I love about Creekside Church is from the very, very beginning, we set out, and we're not perfect, but we set out to love God, to love people, to do life together, like to care about each other, to actually bear each other's burdens. We wanted to be transparent with our finances as a group, as a church. So you knew what was happening. You knew where your money was going. You knew if it was going to what causes. And then we also wanted not to have a huge staff. In, in a, and the reason for that was not because we don't think you can have a large staff. We just didn't want a professional pastor environment. Because the pastor is not a professional. He's set apart from God for a very specific purpose, but not too many churches let a guy like me with a secular day job get up here on a regular basis and preach. And we think that's really important. It's not required, but it's, it's an important part of who we are because we're committed to the idea that we are all in this together. Everybody has gifts. Everybody has passions. Everybody has ways that God has uniquely created them for his kingdom, for his mission. Peter, who's obviously one of these disciples, who's part of this 12 that's making this decision in Acts 6, right? He writes his letter later on, 1 Peter, and here's what he says. Each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If you're a follower of Christ, you have giftings and you have passions that God gave you. They are from him. So when you belong to a church family, in a sense, you know, so often we think that's where I go listen to a sermon or that's where I go, you know, sit for an hour once a week. It should be, that's the people I serve with. Like that, that's what makes us who we are is the serving as like we are on a, a mission together. My mom, at least she says she does, listens to our sermons. I don't know if she really listens to our sermons or not, but she says she listens to when I preach. But just because she listens to a podcast doesn't make her part of our church family. I'm not saying she's not a part of the church, but she's not a part of this church family because it's the gathering, it's the serving, it's the loving one another that makes us a family. Someone's in crisis, God raises somebody up right next to them to walk with them through life. When Rebecca was sharing last week from Sudan, she didn't mention this, but her foster parents were young. Like in my head, like I'm picturing some empty nesters who kids have gone away to college, who, you know, they, they just want to do some good. And, but when I'm reading her book, her foster mom was 28 and pregnant whenever Rebecca came into their home at 15. And then when Rebecca, not that long after, found out she was pregnant from the assault that happened right before she came over from Sudan, she wanted to quit school. And her foster parents said, no, we will help you raise your child you continue to get an education. You know, for some of you, you've been pleading with God to get you out of your current situation. And and maybe his answer to you is instead of removing you is to bring someone alongside you. Like to love you, to encourage you, to, to walk with you because so often God's solution to our problems, like the widows, is people. It's his church, it's his hands, his feet, his heart, his love coming alongside 
to encourage people. And maybe you're not in the middle of a painful situation. So maybe you are the person that God's going to raise up to walk with someone else. And, and maybe it's just not for a moment. It's possible, God, you're in it for the long haul. You don't know this, right? Rebecca's daughter still lives with those foster parents 19 years later. Like they all live in the same town, but they were so instrumental in raising her child that was born out of that assault that the child still lives with them. And I wonder if 19 years ago, when their pastor probably, I don't know this, got up in front of the church and said, hey, there's some kids coming over from Sudan, lost boys and girls. You know, they, they need somebody to help them kind of get on their feet and get headed in the right direction. Would any of you be willing to do that? Do you think in a million years they ever thought 19 years later, that this is what their life would look like. I I don't know. But here's the thing. God's ways are bigger than your ways. And his thoughts are bigger than your thoughts and my thoughts. And I, I think God's doing something pretty special here at Creekside Church. And I can assure you, as we grow, we will have needs. And I have no idea what they're going to look like, but I know we want to be diligent about meeting those. So here's what we're going to do. We have a little handout that everybody in the church is going to get. So this is where the people who are handing them out can, there we go. Um, Everybody in the church is going to get a handout. Can someone help Art so he's not the only one trying to hand it out? Um, And all I want you to do, oh, there we go. Look at these guys planted in the audience to help out. (laughs) All I want you to do is, can I see one of those? All I want you to do is check an area where you are willing to serve. You're not committing for 19 years, right? You're not committing to raising a child yet, all right? On the front is in reach, things inside the church that we anticipate or already have needs for. And then on the back side is outreach, things outside the church, okay? There are things on here that we're not involved in yet. You know, one of the things on the outreach side is human trafficking, at present, we don't have a human trafficking ministry, but the reality is the Super Bowl is coming to town next year. And the Super Bowl is the number one event in the world where people are trafficked. And we want to be prepared. So there are some things on this outreach side that maybe we're not involved in yet, but as a, a member of this church, even as a regular attender of this church, all we want you to do is tell us where you are willing to get involved. Again, you're not committing yourself. I know we don't, we don't live in a, committed, a committal culture. But we just want you to say, hey, I, I'm willing to at least be a, group, a part of a group of people that would take a meal to a new mom or would take a meal to somebody in need. You don't have to do it every time because we're hoping we get a lot of people like that. So, you know, we're not going to bombard you with requests. Just consider yourselves servers, servants, if you will. We're going to start a little database, and then as needs come up and as we grow, let me tell you something. I don't know if Jake is in here. Jake's a busy man. Our church has almost doubled in the last year and a half. We have 1.5 staff members, paid staff members, and the 0.5 is someone who just helps out with finance. So Jake is literally, at this point, running around like a madman, meeting needs. And as we're talking about it as pastors and leaders, we're like, we got a whole congregation full of people who are willing and want to, you just may not know about the need. 
And so our pledge to you is that we're going to make you aware of the need, and we just want you to be obedient to what God's calling you to do. Fair enough? There's a bucket in the back. I would challenge you to fill it out today because what you can do is you're going to take it home. You're not going to fill it out. Your kid's going to write something monitor. It's going to end up in the trash can. Or Satan's going to convince you you can't do it. So I would convince you, before you leave, you can sit here as long as you want. Just jot it out, fill it out, put it in the back. Um, I will leave you with a few thoughts. Have realistic expectations of people. Show grace to everybody. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Don't grumble, complain. It's pointless. Pointless. Go straight to the source. You got an issue? Go to that person. And lastly, listen and genuinely care for people who are struggling. Because you might be that person that can come alongside to help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for these seven verses in the book of Acts. We thank you for what you did, not only in the early church, but what you're going to do in our church. Lord, we're far from perfect. Lord, but our our hope and our goal is to be in step with you. Lord, I pray that we are in step with you. I pray that we are seeking you in everything we do. Lord, and when we fail, that people would show us grace, Lord, that it would not be a reflection of you, Lord. But if we ever succeed at anything, that people know it's not us, that it's you. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for who you are. In your name, amen.